Now, the West may not have boots on the ground in Ukraine, but it's testing an unprecedented level of alternative weaponry, its economic power, what Vladimir Putin claims is a declaration of war. Now, put it another way, who'd ever have thought that something called SIPs, cross-border interbank payment system, could be such a devastating new weapon? The key twin moves by the West, even Switzerland, to deny the Russian central bank access to its carefully built huge foreign reserves and the denial to Russian companies of the swift messaging system between the world's banks facilitating quick money transfers. Are the norms of the international financial system being turned on their head? Is it genuinely a hinge of history, as one of our headlines said this week? One of the world's most prominent economic historian commentators, Adam Tooze, is observing this with keen interest, plunging into analysis regularly in his Substack columns and foreign policy podcasts. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Global payment systems becoming a weapon of war. Uh, Is it equivalent to a declaration of war, as Putin is suggesting? That's strong, and Putin is arguing his case. But I think there's no doubt at all that the strike against Russia's foreign currency reserves, which was the attack on the central bank of Russia and isolating those reserves, which are held by other Western central banks, really is unprecedented. And as far as the economy is concerned, it's state-on-state action. It strikes not at individual businesses or individual payments flows for particularly sensitive commodities, but the entire Russian currency is put in play. It's extraordinarily dramatic and unprecedented as far as large G20 states are concerned. Yes, one of our economic commentators, Peter Martin, put it really quite interesting. That action that you've just described broke a bond of trust that makes a bank a bank. Uh, And, you know, obviously no one really saw it coming. I'm not even sure that the West saw it coming. Does it change something fundamentally about this question of trust? It does, so long as you think you might fall under suspicion. I mean, if you look at the list of major central banks in the world and the reserves they hold, and because these are foreign exchange reserves, you sort of almost have to hold them outside your country if you're not going to hold them in the form of gold or something like that. So if you look at that list, um, the vast majority of those states, it's just unthinkable that they should fall under any kind of fundamental conflict with, you know, what we call the West in an extended sense. You know, the likes of Brazil or India, I don't think ever really could imagine finding themselves in that position. But there is Russia, there is Saudi Arabia, and of course, there's China. And certainly as far as those three are concerned, you have to wonder what's going on in the mind of their central bankers and their reserve managers, because what we've exposed is that if you end up in a position of really fundamental conflict with that you know, extended West, then yeah, and if everything's fair game. Really, there's, no, there's nothing that's off, off the table. Well, it certainly suggests, doesn't it, that the system that the West set up after World War II, because the West was essentially the victors, though very much with Russia, uh, you know, with the Soviets, as uh, Putin is on about all the time, is incredibly dominant, even more than we might have thought, so much for sort of democracy's weaknesses. Well, yeah, there was a story about the decline of the dollar um, as a global currency, which has been ongoing and slow, though it's still the main reserve currency. But it turns out, of course, when you look at it, that the only other currency you could go into would be the euro. And so 85, you know, roughly 85% of all global foreign currency reserves are held in one or two of those those good currencies. The Russians thought they were being clever and pulling out of dollars and positioning it all in euros. But when it came to the crunch, of course, that is a solid block. There's really nowhere you can go. I mean, China in particular 
with reserves of its scale, three trillion dollars plus. There's really there is no liquid market. You know, there's no deep market that could absorb that kind of a reserve. They are, after all, in the end, expressions of financial expressions of foreign exchange earnings that they earned by selling stuff to the West, right? So this entanglement on a financial level is not it's not really surprising because it's simply the financial counterpart to what was a real transaction between them and us, between them and the West. Can you only do it once? I mean, is this it? You know, now that everybody knows it can be done, uh, it sort of slightly loses its ability to stun, doesn't it? It, it does, but, I mean, one has, to, I think, to focus on the unique situation here. I mean, we are talking about an all-out war declared by one European state on a large neighbor, also European state. I mean, how many cases of this do we expect to happen? Um, you know, we got within 24 hours of the declaration of the central bank sanctions to nuclear threats. The only other, I think, plausible contingency in which we could find ourselves in this kind of situation again would be an escalation of tension between China and the West over Taiwan. And there again, you know, I don't think we're looking for general rules in a situation like that. We just want to get through it without, without you know, World War III breaking out. Um, so, yes, I take your point that having done this once, they've changed the game. But I think, you know, this is a game played between so many limited players that um, we're, not, we're not really in the realm of devising general rules for applicable to all cases because there's only one or two extreme emergencies where this kind of thing would be relevant. Well, let's look at the, some of the wider questions, particularly how China will, will be seeing it. In fact, this Russian imbroglio exposes China's vulnerabilities uh, more than, than it did before. Yeah, I, mean, I think from China's point of view, it's, it's profoundly embarrassing. I mean, I think their conception of the shift in the balance of power was more gradual, more intelligent, less risky more centered on the things which ultimately probably matter more, which are the economy and tech. And to find themselves as the senior partner of a rogue junior partner engaged in this kind of high-risk activities, I'm sure no one in Beijing's you know, idea of a good time. I think they probably are beginning to wonder whether, whether Russia, which they thought of as a, you know, a serious strategic partner, is in fact a giant North Korea Again, a partner they can't really dissociate themselves from, but also one that causes them endless trouble and, and considerable anxiety and risk. And, and Russia is, of course, a, an order of magnitude more significant. So, and yes, where are they to run? I mean, are, you know, is China really going to back up Russia if uh, Europe and the United States, by far and away, it's its largest um, trading partner, certainly far larger than Russia is ever going to be, um, uh, are asking it to front up against Russia, that puts it in an extremely difficult position. And as I say, I don't think there's anywhere they can really redeploy their foreign exchange reserves because they're simply too big. Well, th th it's so interesting in terms of what it does expose because it's been pointed out in what I've read that the reason this international system, SWIFT, and the sort of access to the central banks work so well is because there's a lot of trust and it's open and it's liquid, so people got to, they can trust their money's work, can, can be safe there. The Chinese want to control much more capital inflows and outflows. So they do have a system, but it's vastly smaller. And um, you can't have it both ways. You can't both try to control capital inflow and outflow and yet make it open to people. Is that a reasonable sort of summary? 
It is. And I think the high roads to Chinese, as it were, financial prominence is, in fact, by simply outcompeting the West, right, by offering better markets, steeper markets, greater rates of return, more stable rates of return. If you look at sovereign debt right now, if you'd invested in sovereign debt in the last six months, the sovereign debt to have been in would have been Chinese sovereign debt. So I think that kind of competitive route for, from their point of view is far more promising. And that does involve a degree of openness the question, of course, is whether that can really be maintained in light of, on the one hand, yes, the Chinese demand for control, and on the other hand, both sides mounting suspicion uh, and geopolitical tension, which forces private investors to choose. And we've seen that both on the American side, for instance, in the in the in the tech space, but also Chinese companies and American foreign investors in China coming under huge pressure to toe the line, whatever is set by the regime at any given moment. So the the idea, yes, is, is indeed, if you wanted to drive the renminbi, the yuan, as a genuine commercial alternative to the dollar, it would need to compete on those terms. The the And that does run against the this logic of polarization, if not block formation. I think that's one of the central questions of the current moment. There's clearly polarization in geopolitical terms. But can you corral, can either side really corral all of its allies into the sort of Cold War blocks that we used to, that we used to be familiar with? In Europe, it's conceivable, I think. The antagonism towards Russia is so extreme. But in Asia, in the broader Indo-Pacific region, the, the, the interests are so conflicted. I mean, Australia is a case in point, like gigantic raw material exports to China that make it very difficult to simply peel oneself away. So you see, on the one hand, rising tension, and on the other hand, membership in the RCEP, right? The, the big new free trade bloc, which you want to be part of. Well, I was going to come to that later, but I mean, in fact, the more closer you look, Australia could be on a blinder in, a, in, in the short term. I mean, um, the head of the BHP was yesterday addressing a big conference in, in Australia, just talking about the number of commodities that uh, Australia has got to export that could be in great demand right now because their usual sources aren't available. Absolutely right. I mean, we are seeing a huge surge in demand globally for commodities and for energy. It's an it's an absolute riot for all of those companies. They're going to be making money hand over fist. And that, of course, also includes Russia, which is benefiting very considerably from this. So it's a very different scene. How, how do you mean? Sorry, what do you mean by that? Well, Russia, Russia um, is having difficulty selling oil, but not so much gas. And the gas is priced at you know current prices, so its revenues from Europe are rising day by day. Huge, huge rises. Yeah, absolutely enormous. I mean, we think its revenues from gas have probably tripled in the last week. Um, so you know, really staggering windfalls. How long those will continue for? Who knows? And if Russia is carved out of the market, then other suppliers, of course, will stand to benefit very considerably. Well, let's talk about those shortages. Now, the, the worldwide ramifications of the oil shortage, um, which is being more and more emphasised the, as the days go by, could we, be, could we go back to something like the 70s uh, with the quadrupling of the oil price rise by the um, uh, exporting countries in the Middle East in 1973 with all the con exceptional effects it had on the world's economy? Um, I think we are seeing something like that. It's a very comprehensive shock across all of the major commodities, oil, energy, 
um, wheat, grain, many of the metallic ores. It's, it's really extraordinarily dramatic. Whether it'll be a quadrupling, it depends what base you measure it from. Um, if you took the lows of the COVID year, you could get to those kind of numbers. It will have that shock. It's very painful, especially for low-income countries. I mean, this is a massive redistribution. India, mm, for instance, mm. its oil bill is probably going to go to $150 billion uh, this year. That's three times what it was last year. Now, India is no longer a poor, struggling country suffering from starvation in the way it was in the 1970s, but that's still a very heavy blow. And in sub-Saharan Africa, with the genuinely low-income countries, many of which are very heavily dependent on food and energy imports, this is going to be a huge uh, absolutely huge shock to them. Whether this spills over into the sort of global disruption, the currency instability, the inflation that we saw in the 70s, that's the entire game now in central bank policy. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, even, we would have been discussing interest rate increases and the effort to, to rein in inflation. Given the shock we're suffering right now, I think most people think that those rate, rate increases will be a little bit more modest. But nevertheless, that is the game that's going to be played out. Can we avoid repeating the mistakes of the 1970s where commodity price shocks were compounded by very loose monetary policy and wage pressure from highly organized and powerful trade unions at the time, which, of course, we don't really have anymore, certainly in large parts of Europe and the United States. So it, on the face of it, it's a serious shock, but one that ought to be easier to manage. Unless, like, the bread price issues in the Middle East are dramatic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that there's, if, like, the instability that is almost certain to flow there is, is staggering because wheat is now going to be, uh, because the Ukrainian wheat is not going to be nearly as much and nearly as available. So, I mean, that's a very worrying aspect of it, isn't it? Yes, it is. Wheat is not sanctioned directly. It's always exempt from sanctions on the humanitarian grounds. But the trade is going to be disrupted anyway by the difficulty of getting insurance on ships in the Black Sea and the difficulty of getting trade finance. And, and, and that will disrupt the supply of, yeah, wheat, uh, Russia and the Ukraine between them are responsible for about 28 uh, percent in, in areas like vegetable oil and sun, sunflower oil, you know, a key cooking ingredient for many of the Asian economies. Their, their share of global supply is 80 percent. So, you know, we're talking about a huge shock to household budgets across the across the world, which will absolutely hurt low-income countries worst. I mean, how they adjust, who knows? I mean, this is then a matter of creative, you know, response on the part of governments. But it's not by coincidence that, you know, the Arab Spring in 2011 followed a giant spike in uh, food prices. Precisely. Drawing towards the, uh, the end, I suppose it prompts that question, can you really be self-reliant in the modern connected world? I mean, that was Putin's dream, and Fortress Russia is certainly not working as he thought it would. Uh, and I mean, if, if the answer is no, um, how do you prepare the democratic citizenry around the world, including Australia, for absorbing these considerably bigger blows that you're, you're describing? I think you build regional alliances. Any one country, even the very largest, even the United States, is probably not capable of full self-sufficiency. But if you build a, a team, if you build a block, then you've got possibilities for substitution. I think that's one key element. Another one are institutions that give you backup. So, you know, in the end, you can find almost anything in the world economy if you're willing to pay the price. So the question is really, have you got the finance? And so institutions like the IMF, the World Bank or regional development banks can play a very powerful role here. And then the third element is that often with these sorts of issues, it's as much domestic 
distributional issues as anything else that matters. We're not absolutely short of grain. It's a question of making sure that those at the bottom of the income pyramid have enough. And so that is something you can address through domestic policy, through strategies of fairness, really, that are directed towards rebalancing. If you combine those three elements together, I think international cooperation with partners of, you know, coalitions of the willing, general sources of finance to, to see you through, and then a focus, a really laser-like focus on who is actually hurting most here. I think those are the key elements for a more resilient um, approach. But you're absolutely right. Total autonomy, well, it would be hugely inefficient. Right? I mean, it would be grotesquely inefficient. Imagine if everyone had to manufacture their own smartphones or something like that. No, I mean, it makes far more sense to have the sort of complex supply chains that we do. But then we do have to think about worst case scenarios in which those connections get severed. Can Russia possibly retaliate against this? Is it, you know, that's what people like Bill Browder, who's, you know, Putin's long-standing foe, says prepare for retaliation because he's just not the sort to give up. Yes, I think, I mean, two obvious mechanisms. One would be uh, a, a gas boycott, so refusing to deliver gas to Europe, which would cost the Russians dearly, but it would cause chaos in Europe right now. There's no question. If it was a sudden shutoff, um, they've got a couple more relatively cold months where they could apply some very serious pressure. And then beyond that, I do think we have to be thinking about more aggressive measures of economic warfare. So cyber, for instance, if the Russians really unleashed large scale cyber attacks uh, on the electronic infrastructure of the West, that will be something to look out for. That, however, I think will be taking things to genuinely the next level of that would be a full and proper escalation rather than something you could describe perhaps as simple uh, retaliation tip for tap. And look, I just very quickly, final one. In a way, doesn't China have to draw the conclusion, as it's been suggested to me, that they have to engage more with the international system? That's the lesson they may be taking of this. Not, not, to, not to separate and do a separate one. They've got to get in there more. Well, heaven knows, if you look around for substantial global powers capable of mediating this conflict at this point, who is it to be, Right. I mean, um, it clearly can't be the Europeans and the Americans at this point because they're effectively parties to the conflict. So then you're looking at, you know, you're looking at maybe the Quad or something like that, you know, a coalition of, of substantial Pacific Asian, Indo-Pacific states, or on the other hand, China, who, who are clearly interested, but not really, you could say, party to this conflict. And, and indeed, I think Beijing may be maybe doing that kind of math, that the, that is in their interest. They've been quite frank about the fact that they, they hope very much that the conflict will come to an end as quickly as possible, and we should, we should take their word for it. All right. Look, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I do appreciate it. You're welcome. Sorry I have to rush. Adam Tooze, a director of the European Institute at Columbia University, and his latest book is Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy.